I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, it's 10 p.m. and you are watching The Tonight Show. As schools reopen, shocking new figures reveal 40% of 12 to 16-year-olds are victims of cyberbullying. Is it time we take the phones away from our children? And as the state continues to fund private schools, Labour TD Aon O'Reardon and former headmaster of St Andrews, Arthur Godsell, debate the pros and cons of this policy. And we find out why Ireland is considering legal action against UK's Northern Ireland legacy film. First, Virgin Media political correspondent Gavin Riley is live for us in Jerusalem this evening, where the Tanishta Michael Martin has been meeting with Israeli officials, including the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Gavin, thank you for joining us. I think we should start by maybe establishing how it is that Ireland is viewed by Israel. Not as positively, Kira, as I suspect we would like. Ireland, broadly speaking, is a country that likes to be liked, but it's fair to say that within Israeli political and diplomatic circles, Ireland is not terribly well-liked, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the view of the Middle East as something of a zero-sum game. If you were seen as being pro-Palestine, then you were seen in some quarters as being anti-Israel, irrespective of whether or not that's a fair rendition. There's also some concerns around Ireland's commentary whenever there might be a flare-up of violence in the Middle East. We were speaking to some officials today from the Israeli government who were expressing concern that every time that there's something as they see as an exchange of equal fire across the sides, something which they might see as being justified, that Irish commentary tends to be more weighted in favour of the Palestinian side and critical of the Israeli uh, response, which they see as merely self-defence. So Ireland is not broadly liked. And that's what makes Michal Martin's mission here a little bit of a difficult sell, because he's trying to put some adrenaline into a peace process in the Middle East, which has really run into the ground in the last couple of years and which doesn't show any sign of getting out of the quagmire. And he's also trying to, at some degree, market Ireland as something of an honest broker and maybe helping to inject some impetus into that. But it's very difficult for Ireland to be perceived as an honest broker when, in truth, Israel doesn't think very much of our stance on that whole question. So did this very much then inform the, the tone, the atmosphere at the meeting today between Michael Martin and the Israeli PM? Not the entire atmosphere, but it definitely did cast something of a shadow over it. Ordinarily, when we cover visits like this, it's usually a whole thing of trying to illustrate the common ground that there is between two different countries, the common ground in this instance between Ireland and Israel. There wasn't so much of that today. When we did get the readout afterwards, and Michal Martin's even official tweet uh, talking about the meeting that he had with Benjamin Netanyahu, the very first word he used was frank. He wasn't saying cordial or constructive or helpful or welcome or any kind of nice word. He was saying frank, which effectively is diplomatic code for saying 
it might have been pretty uh, tough going at some times. Effectively, Michal Martin saying, listen, we think what you're doing in the Middle East is not at all constructive and it isn't going to try and pave the way for a longer lasting solution. Benjamin Netanyahu saying, well, look, at this is our stance. This is what we're doing. We feel we are wholly justified. And effectively, near the twain shall meet. So although at least it might have been helpful and you construe it as being helpful as trying to at least have critical friends that might, you know, say something contrary into your ear, it certainly wasn't two leaders singing off the Hamshi at all uh, when they had that meeting this afternoon. Yeah, and I know, uh, Gavin, there was some concern also voiced about some of the other political parties in this country and the position that they might take if they do get into government. Yeah, that's right. The very last thing that Michal Martin attended this evening after he'd had all of his bilateral meetings with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, with the Foreign Minister Eli Cohen and with the Strategic Minister uh, Ron Cohen as well. Uh, the last thing he attended was a meeting of the Council of Foreign Relations, effectively a think tank here in Jerusalem, which tries to sculpt the world really in the Israeli way of thinking. One of the questions that he was asked at the meeting was, what would happen to the Irish stance on the Middle East were there to be a Sinn Féin-led government? And when you bear in mind that the Irish view, or the Israeli view, excuse me, of Ireland's stance on the Middle East is already fairly dim and fairly pessimistic and Anyway, when you put into account the, the simple fact that Sinn Féin would probably fairly promptly recognise uh, formally the state of Israel, it certainly wasn't something that would go down well. So it might well be a case if Michal Martin wants to try and salvage anything diplomatic from this, it might be a case of better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Because if there were to be a Sinn Féin-led government, then certainly the present position would seem much more conciliatory towards Israel than what might be coming down the line in the future. All right, uh, Gavin Riley, I know you're there for the next couple of days for us, so we will speak again. Thanks as always. Now, schools across the country are once again bustling with activity after the long summer break. But an alarming new report by Cyber Safe Kids details how nearly half of 12 to 16-year-olds have experienced cyberbullying. We'll here to discuss who is responsible and how teachers and how parents can best equip our young people to deal with this threat is Labour Party TD, Aon O'Reardon, the CEO of Cyber Safe Kids, Alex Cooney, tech expert, Elaine Burke, and psychotherapist Richard Hogan. You're all very welcome to the programme. I'm going to come to you first, uh, Alex, because this isn't the first time that you have sat in the studio and talked about cyberbullying. This is certainly not your first report seven years on. What's the most surprising about the current findings? So this is the first time that we've included secondary school uh, children in our survey. So we started going into secondary schools last year. And so it's an opportunity to see, compare and contrast uh, some of the findings between uh, primary school and secondary school. And we were quite surprised by the levels of cyberbullying in secondary school. So it was 25% of the 8 to 12-year-olds that we surveyed. And then it rose to 40% of uh, 12 to 16 year olds, which is very significant. And we saw, also found that girls were much more likely to be bullied than boys. Girls were much more likely to post online too, weren't they? Girls are much more active on social media and more, more likely to post videos of themselves online, yeah. Okay, uh, Richard, look, at bullying is awful in whatever form it takes, but there is something particularly nefarious, isn't there, Absolutely. about bullying online. There's no witnesses no. a lot of the time, and it can be 24 seven. Well, that's... That is the really difficult and the sinister aspect of this care is that when we were kids, if we were bullied, you'd generally have respite at home and you'd go up to your bedroom and you'd be safe, you'd put on your music and you'd have a little safe space. But now you're never outside the reach of your tormentor. And that is the dangerous place for our children because they can feel like there's nowhere to turn to. And what I've, and I want to commend CyberSafe Kids, it's a great report. And you know they looked at 5,000, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really in-depth report, but for anyone working in schools, anyone working clinically, it's not surprising. 
And I suppose that, that what I found really kind of like what shocked me, having worked in this, 85% of parents weren't aware what their children were doing online. And I think that needs to work, really, really needs to be looked at. We need a share, shared responsibility here. We can't expect the government to parent their children. We can't expect the schools to parent their children. We have to parent our children and we have to, when we give them these phones, they're taking the world into their hand. We'd never let our children go into a, a house that we didn't know who's in there. And so we have to be careful who they're online with. And we have to, before we hand the phone to them, set out the boundaries. I mean, boundaries are really important. We set out the rules. So you get in there early with your child and you set out the rules. You say it's not the government's responsibility, and yet we've heard Norma Foley, you know, saying over the last number of days, Aon, that one of the solutions here may be a ban on smartphones, a ban on phones in primary schools. Would the Labour Party support that? Is that a good idea? Yeah, that's all fine, but schools have control over the use already of smartphones on the premises. They already have any amount of policies in this area. Sometimes they mightn't uh, always work out, but there is no school principal or school community that's not aware of, of this issue. But budding doesn't always just happen in schools during school hours. We know that it happens after school, it happens in the evening time. And I would absolutely completely agree with Richard. It's far too easy for a politician to say, ah, the schools must do more. There is a if, if you're a parent and you buy this powerful tool and you put it in the hand of your child, you have a massive responsibility to put controls over that. You can't just ask the teacher to do it or the school community to do it if you're not going to do it. Because there's two things. Your you get tired then of schools, the responsibility uh, Well, put every on social ill, every social ill, the, the, the one-liner from the politician is, if only the schools are doing more about it. And it's, it, it gets us out of all sort of trouble. But I feel it's, we need to push the message to parents that your child could be receiving these messages at all hours of the day and night, or your child could be sending these messages. And it can be particularly damaging if your child is in, engaged in bullying behavior as well as receiving uh, bullying messages. And if you know that your child has this device, then it's your responsibility to put you know, controls around it and to empower your child to know as to why it's not a good idea to have it on their person all the time. But this is completely irresponsible. I empowered myself for somebody to, to purchase this for their child, which they will have done, uh, particularly in the age group that is most troubling that we've discussed about earlier, and then the not, to to any, and not to put any controls around it. So you, don't politicians please say the answer's in the schools, because it isn't, because children don't live in schools. Would you agree, Alex? I actually would. I, I cer certainly agree that parents have a huge responsibility mm. here. Uh, what I think, though, is that they are ill-equipped themselves. And we need to do so much more to support parents to yeah. parent on this. The, the number of parents I speak to who say, I don't know where to start. My kids know more than I do. This is really overwhelming. I, I, I feel very a, shut is, out. Is that a bit too easy to say? You know, is it not a parent's responsibility, Alex, to inform themselves? This is new territory. This is genuinely new territory. Children have had access to the online world for about 10 years. And it is, it is something that they don't feel equipped to, to do. They either have their heads in the sand or they don't feel equipped. You've got a few, a precious few, who really know what, what, uh, how to engage with their children. And there are really simple things that they can do. So that's the good thing. But I would put some of the onus on schools and some of the onus on government because I feel we need proper education programs. This is a peripheral topic in schools. We've got a media literacy curriculum in primary schools that is over 20 years old. You know, this is not good enough. We need children, they're spending so much of their time online. We need to ensure that they are going into these online spaces equipped, educated, supported, 
supervised. Do you, Elaine, think the school needs to get involved here, that the mobile phone needs to be taken out of the classroom completely at primary and indeed at secondary level? I'd be really surprised if there's a classroom operating now that allows phones. So this is really just posturing to me and also wouldn't be effective because when have school bans ever been effective? I've, we were banned of having nail polish. We all had nail polish. You know, like the, the instructors in schools don't have time to be enforcing and policing this and instructing those classrooms. Like it's just, it's a fallacy that this is even any way effective. But I think it, that putting it on the parents as well, there's, I have a lot of sympathy for parents. I'm not a parent myself. It's very easy for me to say, oh, you shouldn't give them the phones. They've gone back to school this week. They would have been under major pressure to make sure that their kids were well kitted out for school, that they had an Instagram level lunchbox, that they you know, have all of the things that every other person in their class has. And they're under a major pressure for that. Parents are under the same social pressures that these kids go through through social media as well. There's all this perfect parenting that's shared online that they're trying to replicate. And most of them, they don't hand those phones over just because they think it's a great idea. A lot of parents hand it over against their better judgment. And it's because in this world that we live in today, it's actually a social outlet for their kids in a lot of ways. Kids socialize online now. Gaming is hugely social and that takes place online. There are things that can be done to better protect them in those spaces by tech companies. But there's also a literacy there that we all don't have. We have never grown up the way these kids have. I haven't grown up how they have, and people older than me certainly haven't got a clue when it comes to things like Discord, like beyond TikTok, we've heard of that, but there's other platforms that they're on. Um, in terms of when kids should get mm. phones, Richard, I mean, we're talking about 40% of, of kids between 12 and um, 16 being cyberbullied, 25% of kids between 8 and 12. One of the other findings in the report was that nearly half of these 8 to 12 year olds have their own smartphone. Yeah. Has the horse bolted for those kids? It has bolted for those kids, and I think that we should... You can't take it back off them. Well, you can, but it's going to be very problematic and it causes an incredible amount of conflict. It's harder to roll back, and that's why I'm saying early boundaries. Have a, as a family, have an idea about smartphones. Having your smart, letting your child go to bed with their smartphone, very bad idea. Letting your child have the games in bed, in their bedroom, very bad idea. Comfortable for the family because your child's up gaming, but not good for the not good for them because they'll be getting notifications. I, I work with this all the time, Kira. I mean, the amount of families I meet every day where the child is not able to go to school because they're exhausted, they're just completely sleep deprived and also ag agitated and, and angry because of their gaming habits. Listen, Kira, the World Health Organization classified gaming in the extreme as a new mental health condition. The DSM is going to roll out with that and classify it as that with, uh, at the same. And then we're going to have a pharmacological response and we're going to have our kids medicated about their gaming habit. That's a parental issue. And we, we do need schools. Schools are really important here. And I disagree with you there a little bit, Elaine. I work in schools a lot. Schools can monitor this. Schools can actually deal with this. Schools can have a blanket ban on this. And it's a community response. And when you get that, you're going to have a very advantageous response. So where does this, does it start then in the classroom? Is that an easier place for a parent to say, look, you're not getting it at school, so you're not getting it home. Would that be advantageous to parents? I, I think so. But again, it's age. It's age, you know, because if, if a kid's not on their phone at 13 or 14, they're outside their peer group. They're going to be, you know, targeted. They're going to be on the periphery of what's going on. It's not, it's not realistic to say that a child wouldn't have their smartphone at 14, 13 or 14. That's, that's normal, I would say. For, and, and they do, like Elaine is absolutely spot on there. This is how they communicate to each other. This is a social aspect. There's massively social 
social aspect. This is how they communicate. We communicate when we were young, meeting each other. They communicate through their devices. But you do feel schools have a role here. I, schools have a huge role here. But they do. Yeah. I mean, but they, they can they, they can set the tone. I mean, schools can set the tone in certain terms of diet, in terms of healthy eating. They can set the tone in terms of of you know traveling to school by bike and 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 all these various different things. That's what schools do well. But children do not live in schools. And um, when I was working in a school, a huge amount of the issues that we heard about in terms of bullying happened after school, on the way to school. And it is completely different than it was 30 years ago. Parents will have a, a sense of bullying of what they experienced when they were children. Now, there is no safe zone mm. inside the, the home because it travels into the home with you. And every time you look at your phone, you're worried about another message or even the sanctity of your own, of your own bedroom. My point is this. I think it's far too easy to have a one-liner saying schools. Mm. It is the schools. But parents, I think, need to be empowered, yes, Absolutely. probably from the school community where the learning happens together and have a collective approach to it. But it is also about outside school and what parents have to talk to their children about and, and why is it about. Because, look, my Are parents putting their head in the sand a bit Well, about my child is five so. and I'm terrified. I'm genuinely terrified at the moment where she decides that she wants a phone because all her friends have it. Uh, and and the world that that she's going to be exposed to when she's older that terrifies uh, uh, parents of of children at uh, the age. Oh, of I, absolutely! I'm a parent of a of a four year old, and it's one of the things I was really thinking about today. At what age will I give her the phone? Because I'm sure she's going to be asking for it from a young age. Have you come to a decision on that? <laughs> it's, not, it's not just going to be my decision, but I, I, I certainly think it will help in the school community that they'll set the tone. But certainly I know it'll be my decision or our decision as a family to make these, to make these recommendations. But certainly I cannot envisage a situation where uh, any parent can think it's a good idea for a child to be in their, in their bedroom with a phone and, and not expect either for to be on the receiving end of, of bullying messages or sending them out. And we've moved along from the idea of somebody being a bully. There are people who engage in bullying behaviour, but to, tar you know, to tarnish somebody with that label I think is pretty old-fashioned. But we need to, I think some parents also have to understand that yes, their Johnny or their Mary, Mary can be the ones who are doing the bullying. Do they maybe parents, not understand what cyberbullying looks parents like? Parents hate the idea that, that their children are engaged in it, but somebody is. And it can be their child. So in terms of cyberbullying, just the definition, we break it down into a range of experiences so that we're not actually calling it cyberbullying. We ask children, have they experienced the following? Mm. And they can tick whichever ones are relevant. So have you received mean messages? Has, has anyone posted mean messages about you? Have you been excluded from, you know, those sorts of things. Has a, a fake account been set up? Uh, but I think that, you know, I do have a lot of sympathy with schools because I know, having spoken to many, mm. many of them, uh, they feel that this is a parenting problem and it's fall coming in through the school gates and it's, it's having a disruptive factor in the classroom uh, because so many children are using their devices in the bedroom. We asked this question and the vast majority of primary school and secondary school children are using their devices in their bedroom. And, you know, once a door is shut and the child is in there, the, the parental care is completely excluded from what they're doing uh, in their bedroom. I, I am conscious, Elaine, here, maybe as a parent, but that we don't let the tech companies off the hook here. You know, it is really hard to be a parent. Uh, sometimes, all of the time, there's a lot going on. People are working, people are busy. People, most of the time, I think, are trying their best. What also struck me today was how many of these young children have social media platforms yeah. and yeah. profiles when there's meant to be age restrictions. They are clearly not working. I don't think the right tactic to take with parents is to berate them for 
haven't given their phone, their child access to these tools and things like that, because there's so many positives related to them. Like we're dwelling on the negatives tonight, but there's a lot of positives related to their use of technology and that can't be ignored. And that's why it's such a precarious position for parents to be in. We're talking a lot about kids use and not talking about smartphone use in general. Are the parents using the phone in the bedroom? Are the parents on the phone all night? Like we have to look back on ourselves and our use and be a better model and really come to terms with our own use. And these platforms, as you mentioned, they are designed to hold your attention and to feed you plenty of uh, content and information that it's, involves the stickiness aspect to it. So like TikTok is famous for it. You can drop into TikTok thinking you'll be there for five minutes and an hour later, you've lost all that time and you don't even know what you really did with it. And that's our usage. So what reflection are we giving to these kids and we're worried about what their usage is, but are we turning the mirror back on ourselves? What about the tech companies? Well, like they are getting police now in terms of dark patterns and things like that with the Digital Services Act. Now that's the big platforms at the moment that will be coming through for all platforms as of February next year. And there's also some specific measures around children. So you can't target advertising at children. That means that they'll have to be able to identify what's a child and who's a child in their account. So they need maybe more robust age verification policies. There's so much more platforms can be doing around moderation in general that would make the internet a better place for absolutely everyone. A better, and safer place. And the investment place. and the teams are not put behind that. Uh, the research I was doing today, uh, Richard, before we came to this item really frightened me because I was looking at the causal association between exposure to cyberbullying and anxiety, mm. depression, poor mental health and adulthood. I mean, this is really serious. It is. I mean, the Surgeon General came out there a couple of months ago and said, look, if you break down what he said, these things are addictive and they're negatively impacting on the well-being of our children and they need to be moderated. And, that, and that's just the reality of this. This is a parenting issue. There's bigger issues as well. I mean, pornography, which I'm always talking about, and I can't believe in 2023, you know, I worked in a school recently and they told me that a senior infant had consumed hardcore material. Kind of going, this is a dystopian kind of stuff. We do need legislation in here to protect our kids so that they're not consuming hardcore material. And that's what's happening here, Kira. And it is, it is, it is worrying. And of course, there are massive benefits to this for educational aspects, but there are very dark aspects to this. And our kids are being targeted and our kids are being alienated and our kids are comparing themselves more than they've ever done before. And so girls send out a message and it's gorgeous, hon, fabulous, hon, you look gorgeous. And then someone says, I don't like your makeup. And they collapse underneath that, you know, and it's really important that we help them out of these superficial understandings of like image and filters. And, you know, we see Vogue there recently filtering images of, of 50 year old models. They're sending all these wrong images and these messages out about beauty and, and aesthetics to kids. And they're being fed, like say, Andrew Tate, how the hell is he still on these social platforms? And he's still being fed to teenage boys. If you watch the algorithm, they're feeding it into teenage boys because they know that's where the money is. And that is something that cannot go unregulated. And why are they, why are they so lawless? You know, why are they, because, uh, sorry. Okay, I just want point. to go back, because I want okay. to go back to giving advice for parents tonight, for people who do want to try and confront this and, and do best by their children. What do they need to do, Alex? For parents, it's really about engaging. So once your children, child is, is about to be active online, ideally, so you're thinking about this ahead of time, or is active online, you are alongside them, especially when they're younger. They, these children in primary school, we need clear, I mean, regular conversations about everything they're seeing and doing online, not just the bad stuff, the fun stuff too, you know, uh, sit, sitting down, having those conversations, putting good boundaries in place. As Richard was saying earlier, they need them, you know, keeping them out of, of places like bedrooms and keeping them in family spaces where you can more easily keep an eye on them. Um, using parental controls, they're useful when they're younger before they work out how to get around them, which mm. they will eventually. But, you know, all of these things. But what I would say, if it, if, to put it in a nutshell, is 
We need to equip children better to be in these online spaces. So that's going to be parenting and that's education. And then we also need to ensure those online spaces, and this is the tech company's responsibility, are made safer for children. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now, but it is an issue we will return to. My thanks to Alex Cooney, to Elaine Burke and to Richard Hogan. Well, after the break, Ian O'Reardon goes head-to-head with the former headmaster of St Andrew's private school, Arthur Godsell, on the merits of fee-paying schools. Private schools perpetuate a class divide and should the government continue to fund them? Well, Aon Reardon has remained with us and joining him to debate this is the former headmaster of St Andrews College, Arthur Godsell. Arthur, you're very welcome to the yeah. programme. Why should I choose to send my kids to a private school? Well, that's a good question. Um, in actual fact, um, all schools in this country have got great skills and great abilities. Um, different people send their children to fee-paying schools for lots of different reasons. Um, a lot of it might be tradition, might be family connections. Um, there's a number of different reasons why that happens, uh, locality and so on. Um, and it's a, a perception as well amongst parents that um, schools may provide a different form of education um, for their particular child. A so different or a better? Um, well, when I say different, it can also be better in certain areas, but there are non-fee-paying schools that would be very proficient in certain areas. And also fee-paying schools would be very proficient in certain areas. So it pretty much depends on the child, really, and the, and the parent making that decision. It's a very very personal decision to do that. Eon, uh, why do you think parents send their children to private schools? Why do they do it? I don't know. They have their own reasons and they're entitled to do that. It's, it's not uh, for me to second guess why somebody makes that decision that they're entitled to make. Uh, what I have to second guess or to examine is the state's relationship with these schools. Um, what people mightn't understand is that there is a difference between fee-paying schools and non-fee-paying schools in terms of the state's relationship and that we pay the salaries in all second-level schools, uh, but we don't pay capitation in fee-paying schools. So it's about 100 or so million a year that we pay the salaries of those who work in fee-paying schools. We pay I've, for the teachers, we, we pay, pay for the, the teachers. SNAs. Yeah, I found out through a parliamentary question this summer that we spent 3.6 million on, on building works in fee-paying schools last year, which is something I have a difficulty with. So I suppose what we should examine is, is this the appropriate relationship? Uh, I think it is fair to say that those schools who allow everybody in, who have an inclusive uh, admissions policy, who don't exclude, uh, and who have uh, taken that respons responsibility very seriously are the ones who the state should focus their attention on. And I think over time uh, it will be appropriate for us to, for us to disentangle. Uh, what I feel is this... What do, you mean, of, is, what do you mean by disentangle? Stop I mean, paying the... Well, you we can't do that overnight. And salaries I, 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 of I, the teachers and SNAs no, predominantly? No, I, I, think, I, I think we need to have a responsible kind of reflective debate on this because if you do that immediately... What would happen is that a number of these schools would probably come immediately into the state system and then we would be then responsible for the capitation and it could cost the state more if we did it, you know, without a process, if you like. But some, some fee-paying schools have come into the state system over the last number of years and we encourage that to happen. I don't feel it's appropriate when you have fee-paying schools with such other resources available to them 
uh, that we should be paying 3.6 million on their, uh, on, the, on their buildings. I certainly think we should I, have I, a... Th I think the department did say at the time, didn't they, that, that there was a particular school that was perhaps coming into the public system and it was being expanded for that reason. I think there was a reason for that. Right, yeah. so, so do you have a problem with... I, I, private education and with the state paying for the teachers within that system. I think what the state has to do is to is to use the resources of the state to fund those schools which have an absolutely um, you know open uh, admission policy. I don't feel that it is appropriate for the state to be supporting schools that don't have that. And I think what we should do in the short term, which is what we have done in the past, is to disproportionately disimprove the pupil-teacher ratio in those schools. So there is a higher pupil-teacher ratio in fee-paying schools than in non-fee-paying schools. So, and just to be clear, you don't want the government paying private schools at all? Over time, I think it's, not, it's a relationship that should be ended, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I have some sympathy for the concept, the philosophy behind the idea of state support for fee-paying schools. I mean, I think a lot of people would understand that particular argument. Um, in the past, there has been this uh, discussion that the monies that are paid to fee-paying schools could be better employed uh, in terms of non-fee-paying schools, which is a complete fallacy. Um, as Ian has actually made my point for me, mm. in a sense. Um, the, 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 the amount is 100 million, I think, or thereabouts, that is paid by parents, uh, or paid by the state uh, into, into fee-paying schools. That represents 1% of the total uh, education budget, which is 9.623 billion every year. Um, so 99% of the funding goes to non-fee-paying schools. But the, the, the question of um, funding, uh, we have, we, the teachers still have to be paid, the uh, children still have to be educated, and what would happen would be that the state will have to pay more in order to continue uh, the policy that Ian is, is uh, putting forward. Ian has changed his tune a little bit in the last little while, actually, because in the... Uh, uh, in, in earlier days, it was it was it was more strident about his well, yeah, opposition. I, yeah. opposition no, no, I, I never suggested. I no, no, I never suggested it should happen overnight because I. No, it you wasn't know, overnight, I mean, but uh, uh, I, I have uh, you know. What are the points there? Just that Arthur's making. Yeah. Look, there's nine yeah. billion a euro in the Department of Education's budget. There's one percent of that going into these fifty odd schools. It's a drop in the ocean in terms of the department's budget. And actually, the twenty-seven thousand children going to these schools, if they went into a free school, as it were, they would still have to be educated and the department would still spend, spend the money yes, on the teachers' necessities. Uh, in, in Ireland, we separate children on the basis of gender, religion and income more than any other European country. We have an obsession with separation of children and it hasn't produced the type of education system, to my mind, uh, which, which serves us well. So is it uh, not, it's not the money per se going into It's not into the money. System? No, is it's it not the money. The, the whole concept of a public versus a private education Absol system yeah, that you have the difficulty Absolutely. With. And by the way, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that if state support for certain fee-paying schools was to be withdrawn, they would absolutely find the resources because that's what they want. And I will say this much. The fee-paying sector have an incredible influence over policymakers. There was a piece of an amendment to the, uh, to the admission bill in 2018 which was lobbied for by the fee-paying sector, which ensures that any school, and this is particularly in the fee-paying sector, can have 25% of its intake, right, uh, drafted from the children or, or grandchildren of past pupils. So this, this incredible influence that they have over policymakers continues. And that I have, I have failed absolutely in amending that piece of legislation or changing at least that piece of legislation, which is incredibly elitist. None of my grandparents went 
uh, to second level school. Yet a person whose grandparent did uh, would have more of a right uh, to go into that school than an outsider. So my point is this, that we have to remove elitism from the Irish education system. Okay. We have to remove separation of children from the Irish education system. And if people want, well, as is their right, to go to a fee-paying, send their child to a fee-paying school, best of luck to them, but it's not the state's responsibility or duty to support. All right, uh, okay. they are elitist, well, aren't they? Aren't but, they? Would you accept that? Can I just come back on something there? I, I, I am really getting quite tired of this constant barrage against fee-paying schools. This goes back to 1968, and the, the system under which fee-paying schools and all schools in this country operate goes back to that date. Now, since then, as Anne has pointed out, the amount of funding to, to fee-paying schools has been dramatically reduced, and therefore there's a need for them to have fees to, uh, to uh, su supplement uh, the shortfall. But um, that, the, the, the most important point of all here is that it is a public-private partnership. It happens in other parts of our society. It happens in road building, it happens in health insurance and other areas. So, But this the, is education. This yeah, is this, education of yeah, children. Absolutely education of children. And my point... And should there be a class divide there well, between I, those who can afford to educate their children in private schools, yeah. which often have better okay. supplies, better equipment, better resources than those who can't afford and have to send their children. As, as the last time I looked, Kira, we still live in a democracy and parents have the absolute right to send their children to whatever school they see fit, whether that's for religious reasons or whether it's for locality or whether, as Anne has uh, referred to there, in terms of tradition and many families going to the same school. They have that right to do that. So too have the government got their right to pay, to use their taxes that they get from us all, uh, to use in, in whatever way they see fit. I would prefer Anne to spend more time, um, uh, I suppose, uh, debating the issue with the government rather than uh, attacking fee-paying schools okay. because that is, not, would, the, that is not the way forward. Okay, yeah, you would I, accept, though, that the vast majority of people at fee-paying schools are from a privileged background? No, is, I don't accept that. You don't accept no, that? No, I don't accept that. It's not, no, not the vast majority <clears> by any means. I can only speak from my own experience. And in my own experience, uh, when I was head of St Andrews, uh, we had uh, ordinary people... Uh, ordinary parents. Now, we, yes, we did have some uh, wealthy parents, but we had the vast majority were people who were who are struggling to uh, get the fees together and um, and have decided to make sacrifices to do so. So, and we had big bursary schemes as well to help those who weren't. So, it's not necessarily true to say that um, or, or to give the impression that all those uh, parents who go to fee-paying schools are well here. And it's not fair to give the impression that those who send their children to fee-paying schools care more about education Absolutely. or make more sac Absolutely. sacrifices than others. There are some who struggle to get the, you know, the, the, the money to get it for secondary school books or for yeah. uniforms or, or whatever. There are some cohorts of schools who have an entire population of struggling families and struggling young people, yeah. people with behavioural issues, people with, uh, with education disadvantage issues, people with literacy issues, people from the travelling community, people from ethnic backgrounds, all the, you know, disproportionately excluded from your average fee-paying school. My point to you is this, is that it is the responsibility of the state to have an ethic and an ethos of equality when it comes to the education system and for those schools who do not cater exclusively or in an open and even-handed manner to all these cohorts of children who need the education system more than anybody else. It is responsibility to them to, to, to maximise the relationship with those schools, those schools and to minimise relationship fee-paying schools. OK, so I've got a solution to this. And uh, when Ian uh, becomes a leader of the Labour Party and he gets into uh, government, um, I will challenge Aon to increase the, the uh, funding to all schools, uh, non-fee-paying schools, um, from its current level. Our current level um, is 6% of our GDP. 
So, you, but just to be clear, Arthur, I'm just conscious of time here. You want us to increase the funding to public schools to bring them up to the standard of private schools. I didn't, say to, bring, I didn't say to bring them up to the standard of that. I'm saying that if you want a standard of education, we need to look at our European neighbours. Mm -hmm. So if you look at uh, Finland, or, uh, Norway, should I say, Norway, uh, they, they spend 13% of their GDP on education. Uh, you do not find any fee-paying schools in Scandinavia generally. There are some, but not many. But that is, that is a solution. That is, I'd much prefer Alan to spend yeah. his time uh, lobbying the government for uh, that process rather than, can I just finish, yeah, yeah. rather than finish with, uh, or rather than to continually attack fee-paying schools for their elitism or whatever issues that are there. There's excellent fee-paying schools in this country. There are excellent non-fee-paying schools in this country. Can I agree with Arthur there? Because I think that what we actually are talking about here is the relation between money and education. That's what we're fundamentally talking about here. And it is the responsibility of the state. Uh, to bridge that gap. And far too many parents' associations in every school in the country are fund basically fundraising. Bodies. But to go back to the issue of private schools, you don't think there should be that relationship between money and education? No, no I don't. Uh, I feel it's the fundamental responsibility of the state to, to, to support those schools who, who have an inclusive, uh, inclusive uh, admissions uh, policy and to loosen, over time, that relationship with fee-paying schools. Because, because it, they're not, they're, you have to accept, Arthur... You, they're, they're not as inclusive. I mean, these are schools that are charging maybe four, five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand euro a year. They can't be inclusive. It depends what your parents earn. Um, there's no, there's no doubt that that fee-paying uh, schools charge fees. Uh, they range. Um, I don't know if you've seen recently the uh, uh, the survey of of non-fee-paying schools and voluntary contributions, which apparently are not voluntary, according to some mm. commentators. Um, and as Ian has made a point earlier. Uh, the whole idea of uh, families not even being able to pay that uh, fee, which is a voluntary contribution. So there's fee-paying schools across the whole country, in actual fact. OK, well, look, we're going to have to leave it there for now, but my thanks to Ian O'Reardon and to Arthur Godsell for coming in to us. We've lots more on the programme right after this quick break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. UK government has been urged to scrap its controversial new Northern Ireland legacy bill, which has drawn criticism from all the major parties in Northern Ireland. We'll here to discuss this further. Our journalist Amanda Ferguson and journalist and author 
Aoife Murray. Very welcome to the programme. Amanda, I'm going to come to you um, first. You might explain to people at home what this legacy bill is all about and why it is proving so offensive to so many. Yeah, well, the, the UK government's uh, troubles bill, as it's described, is due to sort of clear the final hurdles at Westminster this week. Now, there's universal opposition to it across the political spectrum in the North. Parties object to it. Human rights organisations object to it. Lawyers object to it. And most importantly, victims groups and victims' uh, families are objecting to it as well. Essentially, whenever you're talking to members of the public who have lost uh, a loved one, um, they say that uh, the UK government, uh, by introducing a conditional uh, amnesty uh, for crimes like murder uh, and so on, that it really just is sending a message that their loved ones' lives didn't matter. So it's heartbreaking to hear from people in the North, you know, ex expressing those emotions. Uh, and we know that there's a possibility that if this goes through, that the the, the Irish government is considering um, legal action. Um, so it's going to be an interesting couple of days. Um, if this does go through the next steps, what's the trajectory for this bill? Well, the, the, the only problem with the bill and the commission that would flow from it is that um, it's not clear who would be willing to participate with it and who would be uh, willing uh, to, to go along uh, with the conditions of it. Uh, we know that Sir Declan Morgan, who's a former Lord Chief Justice, is going uh, to be heading this up, and he's a very respected man. But whenever I think of the number of people that I'm speaking to, there's no one really publicly saying that they think that this is a good idea. Now, uh, organisations like Amnesty International will say that it sets also a bad precedent internationally that conflict zones around the world will look to what's happened here uh, and then say, well, you know, in, in a number of decades time, uh, the, 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 the violence and, and the crimes that have been committed will just be uh, drawn a line under and put uh, to the past. Now, the UK government does insist that it thinks that people will get better outcomes and more information. But I think that that um, note of of the public and, and victims' families saying that they feel that their loved ones' lives didn't matter, I'm sure all the, the viewers at home can put themselves in the shoes uh, of someone who has lost a loved one. Everybody at home knows what it is to, to fight for your family and to do anything for them. So the, the, the idea uh, that uh, you would have your criminal uh, justice access cut off, that you would have have civil remedies cut off and inquests cut off to an extent uh, just as abhorrent to so many people. And that's why we've seen uh, widespread uh, objection to this. And also um, we're, we're seeking clarity as well from the from the UK government, uh, sorry, from the, the Labour Party, who is likely to, to form the next UK government, because previously, whenever Keir Starmer uh, visited Belfast back in January, he said uh, that if he was in, in government uh, after the next election, that he would repeal uh, the legislation. So if it goes through this week, then the Irish government has to consider uh, the legal uh, advice that it's given uh, and, and decide you know, to, to perhaps take a case against the UK government. That's the All sort right. of sphere that we're in All at the right. minute. OK, let me just go back to Aoife Moo, who's here in studios, because the big question that everybody's <clears> going to have is why? Why pursue something that is, seems to be so universally unpopular? Um, because it's popular with their uh, troops and that's basically what it all boils down to. The feeling very much in Northern Ireland and um, between the families, and I can only speak for my own family who was a victim of state violence, but the feeling very much is that the, that the British government and the British government that wrote up this bill are more worried about protecting the British state and the British troops than they are. They are willing to forego and forgive IRA and loyalist violence so that they can ensure that their soldiers do not have to face criminal charges. And we're seeing that now with all the obstacles that families are now facing. And I think 
the most upsetting thing for a lot of families in the loyalist and unionist community is it's also that their loved ones who were murdered by loyalists and Republican paramilitaries, they're also being told that this isn't just to cover up British crimes. This will always also cover up paramilitary crimes as well. So and it's strange, Aoife, because anybody who knows politics in Northern Ireland knows there's often, you know, there's very few occasions where there's unity across the board. It is a running joke that the only thing that you can that we can agree on in the North is the colour of the sky, yet we are all agreed. Every single political party is agreed that this will not work, that no one wants this. And as Amanda said, you know, from community groups to Amnesty International, and the thing you need to remember what they're suggesting is a type of immunity that they would want people to come forward. If you look at the inquiries we've already had, if you look at the Savile Inquiry and the Bloody Sunday, those soldiers had immunity then, and they still repeated that they couldn't remember and they couldn't recall. So what or why would they come forward to this now, amnesty, and tell people, have people no the faith truth? In it. Exactly. Um, Amanda mentioned there, look, that the, the Irish government now is to sort of make a decision. They can't mm -hmm. do anything until this becomes law. Is the feeling that they will as you know, co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement, that they will challenge this new legislation? I think we have seen in the last year, in the 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement, we are seeing a renewed interest in the North. And I don't think that's an accident with Micheál Martin becoming the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He takes a great interest in Northern Ireland. What we are going to need, though, are more than warm words. You know, we have seen, you know, uh, Taoiseach go over to the Prime Minister and warn them off things, but it's all very woolly. There isn't much going to it. I know that the Irish government are going to be very reticent to go after the British government and the courts, but they will want to be seen to doing something. And also you need to remember- Particularly when relations have been so fractious. Sinn Féin will be breathing down their necks as we run in now the next two years of an election, and they are going to want to be able to be seen to, be stand, up and to stand up for victims in Northern Ireland. You've written a book about Sinn Féin, The Long uh, Game. Do you think, given your research in Sinn Féin, that they, if they got into government, would want to be embroiled in a battle that goes back to legacy issues when they have spent so much time and so much effort moving the party beyond that. They've moved their own party beyond that, but they, you need to remember that they have, Sinn Féin would always say, have stood behind the victims of British state violence. So, and what, it would be a huge embarrassment for them now to roll back on this now when they come in, uh, if they come in, the government. So I think if we saw Mary Lou's Taoiseach or we saw a Sinn Féin Taoiseach, I definitely think that this is something that they would draw a red line under, that they would have to say that we are going to fight you on this. There can be no amnesty. It would put some of their members or, uh, or whoever else in a lot of hot water and make a lot of people uncomfortable. But I think that's a risk they'd be have to be willing to be take because they have been so behind the families and the victims of British state justice for so long. Um, you said when? there and then you corrected yeah. yourself and said if from the, the the work that you did on the book mm -hmm. is that very much the feeling within Sinn Féin now that it is more of a when than an if? Oh no like I don't think I think actually the public are more complacent about it than within Sinn Féin there is a great fear within Sinn Féin currently between their TDs and their staff that they are afraid that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael will pair up again and they will be able to fight them competitively for seats in the doll. now that was before we had the boundary changes and we saw the polls for that but for a lot of current TDs anyway, from that I'm speaking to, it's not taken as a given. They are still quite worried. Not They're not as panicking, but there is still a fear that they can't get too complacent. So what will the all... strategy then, what do you predict the strategy is going to be as we are going into this new final full dial term? I think the strategy from here on out, it's, they've had basically the same strategy since. Now, they haven't done as much in the last two years of, you know, that they were the popular party and that they had like the posh boys stood in their way. I think we're going to see less of that, but we are going to see a focus 
on health and housing because they know, Sinn Féin know, we all know that this government isn't going to solve health and housing in the next year or two before the next election. That's what they will be concentrating on. Their front bench has always been their you know, best asset. So it'll be Owen O'Brien and Louise O'Reilly and Pierce Doherty and Mary Lou MacDonald out front and that's what they will be fighting the next election on. Uh, looking at the polling at the weekend, everybody's talking about, look, it looks like it would need to be, if the polling played out, a Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil government. Mm -hmm. Are, is everyone within the party comfortable at that prospect? Um, I didn't take a, a head tally, but uh, I think it's very much expected. I think a lot of them, especially in the more left wing of the party, would like to see something a bit different if they could pair up with more left-wing parties. A lot of the people within Sinn Féin don't believe that Fianna Fáil are a left-wing party or even centre-left. Um, some of them find them quite right-wing. So I think if they thought that they could, they would move along with Social Democrats. But we know the more popular Sinn Féin gets, they're going to eat up smaller the, mm. the smaller centre-left parties. So I think they think if they do get in, a Sinn Féin-Fianna Fáil uh, coalition is inevitable. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. Aoife Moore and Amanda Ferguson, thank you as always. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, the MTV. But from all of the late team here, good night. Thank you.